Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. California's history is a history of violence towards indigenous people. Native Americans in our state today are still rebuilding ties to their cultural past because so much of it was destroyed by colonization. And that early violence produced a kind of cultural amnesia. People covered up the dance sites, hid the regalia, weren't allowed to speak the language. Language is something that comes out of what people think and believe. And so we learned another language that didn't think and believe what we did. What got passed down was the violence, more than indigenous values and traditions. And as a result, many tribal communities today are dealing with high rates of domestic violence and substance abuse. Tribal leaders say there is a path to healing, though, and it leads right back to those values that were almost, but not quite, stamped out. Actually saying, I'm sorry that happened to you. And that is a big component to all of this, is being heard. I cannot be in your place, but I can have empathy of what you've gone through. I'm Sasha Koka, and on today's show, we're going to hear the story of a longtime couple. They've each faced a domestic violence charge in state court, and they've got a lot to share about their journey to wellness, including understanding about where generational violence comes from. A few things I've got to tell you about this story. First of all, we're calling this couple Mark and Lydia to protect their privacy because of the stigma of domestic violence. We're not sharing the tribal affiliation or where exactly they live other than to say it's a rural region of the northernmost part of California. And we've altered their voices to protect their anonymity. So you should know they're going to sound a little bit robotic, but you'll get used to it. And one more warning, there are some descriptions of violence coming up. Reporter Lee Romney brings us the story courtesy of the Judicial Council of California, which commissioned an earlier version of this documentary. Mark was an adult when he learned that his own father grew up abused, beaten by more than one of his mother's boyfriends, and he carried that forward. My dad started drinking, and he would come home and beat on my mother. He busted my mom's teeth out with a rifle. I remember seeing this. And so my first... Memories are of domestic violence. I was born into domestic violence. I'm just typical. I'm a typical Native American man. There's a thousand of me all around the area right now. 
The brutality that went on inside his home, Mark says, felt shameful. His friends could hear the horrific fighting from the street. As Mark got older, the schoolyard racial slur started. Wagon burner, dirty Indian. He says he came home crying just about every day. Mark's dad had knocked him around some, too, and his mother left eventually. By now, a stepfather was in the picture. He taught me most of all the cultural things that I know. He taught me how to fish. He taught me how to take care of my family. And when Mark was about 10 years old, his stepdad signed him up for boxing lessons so he could learn to fight his bullies. I started busting people's noses and giving them black eyes. And that power of hurting somebody and being able to stop it was intoxicating. Meanwhile, the woman Mark would fall in love with was growing up with her own legacy of pain. Lydia was born into an abusive home, too. Her dad abused her mom, so they left and moved in with Grandma. But Grandma was living in the shadow of her own childhood traumas. She and her siblings were beat, abused, and molested. It took me a long time to figure that out about my grandma later, you know? As a kid, though, Lydia didn't have that insight. Her grandma just seemed cruel. She would leave me in the back bedroom with no lights on, lock the door. Lydia says her mom was around, but in those early years... Drugs and alcohol and partying. By age 15, Lydia was living with the foster family, but she says her birth mom would abuse her during visits. Lydia kept that to herself for a while. When we're grown up, you were taught whatever happens in your home, you don't tell. You don't tell anybody at school. You don't tell all friends. Lydia says she started doing drugs and drinking. She left the foster home, started couch surfing, and found a boyfriend who beat her. I just wanted to be loved. You know, I just really wanted to be loved. And of course, when they tell you, I love you, you really want to believe it, even if you know it's not true. We'll join Mark and Lydia again soon. But first, you should know, all this trauma traces straight back to colonization. Indigenous people in far northern California lived in balance with the world for thousands of years before Europeans arrived. Abby Abenanti is Chief Justice of the Yurok Tribe. That's California's largest surviving tribe, whose ancestral lands stretch through Humboldt and Del Norte counties near the Oregon border. Judge Abby, as everyone calls her, is a tribal elder at 73 and a trailblazer. In 1974, she became the first Native American woman admitted to the State Bar of California. She says acknowledging the legacy of trauma is key to healing. She's made that her life's work. What you have to do is look at the context and where it came from. Things like boarding school, the Indian Slave Act, and massacres. And that behavior that came out of those things trickled down to the behavior you're seeing today. Those are the symptoms. But if you have the symptom and you have no idea what the context is, it's really hard to stop it. This concept of historical trauma, it can sound pretty abstract, but we're talking about real people. During the gold rush, white settlers here in California 
took Native Americans as indentured slaves. The law allowed for that. Many of them were captured in the north um, and sold down into the middle of the state, into the south. Most were kids who'd witnessed the murder of their own parents. They get to see that, and then they get to be slaves. And many of them escaped and ran home. And then they got into adult relationships and had children and had no idea how to parent and had a lot of anger, frankly. Judge Abby can trace intergenerational trauma in her own family to her maternal grandfather. He grew up at a time when Native Americans were confined by force to the reservation. He just kind of went off the, the deep end. He abandoned his family to rob banks and was eventually gunned down by a citizen's posse in Oregon. His absence left a hole. Domestic abuse followed. It was all around me as a kid. So was substance abuse, a form of self-numbing that has haunted tribal communities ever since the colonizers' invasion. For Abby's mother's generation, there were plenty of reasons to crave that numbing. From the mid-19th century all the way through the 1960s, U.S. officials forced Native American children to attend government-run boarding schools. Schools, as one historian explains, designed to, quote, destroy that which was Indian and recreate people in the image of white America. People covered up the dance sites, hid the regalia, weren't allowed to speak the language. Language is something that comes out of what people think and believe. And so we learned another language that didn't think and believe what we did. With cultural amnesia came pain and self-denial. You know, I was grown before I realized my mother and her sisters had been to boarding school and that it was a total negative experience for them. And they did not, any of them, want to talk about it. And they did not talk about it. Let's get back to Lydia and Mark. The cruelty Lydia experienced as a kid caused her to grow up fast. By the time she was 18, she'd been living in her own place for a while, walking four miles each way to a fast food job to take care of herself. Still, Lydia kept one important cultural tradition, salmon fishing. I always fish every summer, that's my life, until I go down there. To the river, and there is Mark. She'd seen him around as a kid, but they'd grown up, and as both of them will tell you, it was like getting hit by a lightning bolt in a good way. I see this beautiful girl step out of this truck, and I looked at her and I thought, oh man, there she is. I loved her the moment I saw her. The moment I seen her, I knew I'm gonna marry that girl. But it was, it was scary. The funniest part about it is I was so scared that it was real, I gave her a fake phone number. <laughs> she gave me a fake phone number too. <laughs> After they cleared up that phone number issue, they were like glue on glue. Was this an automatic connection, you know, but it goes back to where I wanted this picture-perfect life. They were barely adults, but they moved in together and within about three months decided to have a baby. With the pregnancy came conflict. I quit drinking drugs, smoking, and everything, but he didn't. I still wasn't ready, and so we would fight. It was unhealthy. Lydia gave birth to a girl, and a couple of years later, a boy. 
They loved the kids. Neither Mark nor Lydia ever dreamed of hurting them. But the children saw them fight all the time, and each would mirror that behavior later on. They really didn't get physical until I think my daughter was four or five, somewhere around there. When Mark first hit Lydia, she was making breakfast. They were arguing, and it escalated. It was terrible. At the time, the way that I minimized it was, it wasn't like what I had seen. What he'd seen his dad do to his mom. Mark's blow gave Lydia a fat lip, physical evidence. She ran to a neighbor's apartment, and to her horror, that neighbor dialed 911. Lydia says she didn't trust law enforcement. She'd learned that from her mom and grandmother, and she thought calling them would just make Mark matter. But the wheels were in motion. Police showed up and arrested Mark. The state court offered him a deal. If I went to a 52-week program, then the charge would be dismissed. And so, obviously, I took the deal. A 52-week batterer's intervention program. You know, I participated fully. He learned, for example, how to walk away from a fight, to de-escalate. But it wasn't enough. He'd realize later how much he still didn't know about himself and the roots of his violence. I loved her and I loved my children. And I wanted to be better. But I didn't know how to get there. After Mark successfully completed his batterer's intervention program, he says, I continued to work on myself and work on myself. It probably wouldn't have taken so long if I didn't have the drugs. I was still using meth. By the late 1990s, he managed to quit. Then came the opioid explosion. And this is in, you know, early 2000s when the doctors were just basically giving away just as many as you want. As a laborer with regular injuries, Mark had access to that open tap. So Lydia did too. So her, her and I were, were dealing with opioid addiction, but we didn't know. I was getting really short-tempered. I didn't know why. I would grab her by her arm and I would shake her and I'd do these things and I knew better. I wasn't punching, I wasn't slapping, but it was still handling her. They'd split up, get back together, and split up again. Mark says he couldn't trust himself around Lydia. Then, in 2013, he quit the opioids, too. Solo. Not easy to do. They reunited, both of them clean and sober. But just a few years later, a tragedy. We get the phone call that our daughter, they found her body. Their adult daughter was driving alone and ran off the road. The car accident killed her. Domestic violence complicated Mark and Lydia's grief. At the time of their daughter's death, she was involved in an abusive partnership with the father of her own kids. We didn't get to spend the last years with her, so I was drowning in depression. She was my only girl, she was my firstborn, and her and I had this connection. It got so deep, I just couldn't do anything. As for Lydia, I felt like I was living in a box. We were just left to deal with it on our own. Grief is a form of anger. If we had an altercation, I felt unsafe. So she dialed 911, and sheriff's deputies showed up. But Lydia says they brushed her off. They just chatted with Mark and left. And that made me more angry because I, I called for help, and they didn't hear me. 
Lydia says she wound up scratching Mark's nose when she tried to knock a cigarette out of his mouth. Then he called 911, and the deputies came right back. This time, there was physical evidence. She didn't, like, really hurt me. I'm a big man, and it was more of like an equality kind of thing. Like, you hit me, so you should be in trouble, too. I got in trouble for hitting you. Lydia was arrested. It just so happened the couple's adult son had a court date the next day, also on a domestic violence charge. Lydia had planned to be there to support him. Instead, she showed up as another defendant in a jail jumpsuit. I just can't imagine how he must have felt to see me walk in there the next morning on the other side. Earlier, we heard that modern-day domestic abuse is rooted in historical trauma that led to cultural amnesia. Many tribal leaders are convinced that cultural restoration is key to the cure. Judge Abby, the Yurok tribal judge, was part of the very beginnings of this cultural renaissance. In the 1970s, she joined a joyful movement to mine the stories of elders, revive the language, and master the wisdom to bring back the ceremonial dances. And that has had a, a tremendous impact on people, and it's, it's a positive impact. But when you have a break like that, it is very destructive and harmful to the people that, that are suffering from that. It's really hard to regain. One complicating factor, substance abuse, as Mark and Lydia know well. It's a co-occurring problem with a lot of other issues, in, including domestic violence. But clearing up one doesn't clear up the other, and you have to work with both of them. Judge Abby would tackle substance abuse first. About a decade ago, she launched a dedicated court docket to help tribal members struggling with addiction. Her approach was rooted in Yurok cultural values. She called it wellness court, non-adversarial, more restorative than punitive. If you look at the state and federal system, they're very rights-based. You have a right to this, you have a right to that. Our culture is very responsibility-based, and the responsibilities are interlocking in family and in community. So you have to assist them to meet their responsibility and come back into community in a good way. The whole idea to reconnect participants with cultural values so they can repair the harm they've caused and heal so that the community can heal. State court judges started releasing defendants to Judge Abby's wellness court and seeing results. So in 2015, she decided it was time to reach more tribal members cycling through county jail. We had to hand tally all of the people who were incarcerated and determine whether or not they were Yurok, and if they were, what they were incarcerated for. The biggest offense was domestic violence. Yurok legends and parables make clear that this kind of violence was not tolerated before colonization. Generosity, sharing, support for elders and for one's own family were paramount. When domestic violence did occur, the village system handled it internally, meeting out serious consequences. We had been working for some time with the victims of domestic violence 
but we had not spent any time on the perpetrators. Lori Nesbitt was working in Judge Abby's court, and she was in charge of that hand tally, keeping a daily record of which Yurok tribal members were in jail. She and her colleagues started showing up at the county courthouse. Delivering our business card saying that we're from Wellness Court, and if you would like our assistance, we can kind of walk the way with you. Many, it turned out, were in for violating probation, for not completing the state's 52-week batterer's intervention program, the same one Mark attended. The cost of the state program depends on income, but it's still $1,000 at the lowest end of the sliding scale. So Judge Abby and her team decided to try something new. They would create their own 52-week batterer's program and get the state to certify it. That way, the state courts would accept it. But we also wanted to change the class to add more to it so that we could use a cultural approach to resolution of the issue. A few years earlier, a collective of tribal court judges from throughout the region set out to understand the scope of the domestic violence crisis among tribal members. The Northern California Tribal Court Coalition conducted surveys and organized focus groups. The results? Nearly half the women and a fifth of the men who responded said they'd been abused by a partner. Lack of trust in law enforcement and state court systems was common. And people also said they wanted services that were more tailored to Native American culture. So body signs are, are things that you can't control. So the heartbeat, the sweaty. Here's Lori Nesbitt from Judge Abby's court in late 2016, the year the Yurok tribe rolled out its batterer's intervention program. She's doing an exercise with the men's group. No, your body sign. This is about you. This is this is another tool like you doing the timeout. When you know that the conversation. The curriculum includes all the basics. Take full responsibility for your actions. Recognize that domestic abuse is a crime. Identify your triggers. Specific Yurok cultural practices aren't on the agenda. The only way to make the program pencil out was to make it open to everyone. That means tribal members from throughout the region and non-tribal members, too. But, Lori says, the program's whole approach stems from Yurok-style justice, restorative more than punitive. We have a big component of establishing a relationship with the clients and who are they, you know, and who is your family? What do we need to know about them and how can we share and walk the path with them? The only program cost is $30 for a book. All participants make a family tree and conduct an elder interview about domestic abuse. Participants are pressed to identify not just the family members that led them astray, but the ones who taught them cultural practices and helped root them to a sense of self. You know, who raised you and who acknowledged that you had purpose in your life. Lori says one Yurok tribal member shared salmon he'd caught and smoked, explaining to the group how he prepped it. Most of all, Lori says, she acknowledges past pain especially as the deep generational roots of family violence come to light. Actually saying, I'm sorry that happened to you. And that is a big component to all of this is being heard. I cannot be in your place, but I can have empathy of what you've gone through. The goal when the class ends is self-forgiveness. Being in a small community 
people talk and you carry that shame. And once you've gone through this program, you can kind of acknowledge that, yeah, some things happened and I've repaired those. I've forgiven myself. After Lydia's arrest, she was offered the same deal Mark got, complete a 52-week batterer's intervention program, and her domestic violence charge would disappear. She chose the Yurok one, which was open to everyone, native or non-native. You have to be totally and completely honest. And so instead of me being the victim all the time, you know, I learned that I was also abuser. I learned that I did that to my children because I had the choice to leave. It was a process. And that was going back and really finding out where did this start. That context of her own trauma and the chain of traumas that came before, it's been transformational. I learned how to love myself. <laughs> I, I'm just now feeling like I don't walk around in shame. Lydia and Mark separated again after her arrest. But while she worked her program, Mark says he kept pushing himself to be better too. He went to counseling and to a Christian faith-based recovery program. There, Mark says, is where he finally began to understand his trauma. I started learning about what PTSD was and how it does your body and the fear and how it paralyzes you and where it came from. All these things just started flooding and realization and epiphanies and just understanding my life. Lydia and Mark are back together about three decades after they first fell for each other. They both say a big part of their healing these days is participating in their own tribal community, giving back. And they each have an idea for a new way to help tribal members affected by domestic violence. To have a safe house for women and children, but it would have to be way up in the mountains and it would be gated with security. It would be a home with programs for them to heal and the children to heal too. Mark's idea is specifically for men. They go into an isolated place where they're taught their culture, where they're taught to fish, to dance, to sing, to give to your elders. And then I want them to come out as a dance crew to show thy strength, because I believe if you get a bunch of men that can do that, there's going to be so much power to recover those men. I just feel that so deep. Their vision for the future? To destigmatize domestic abuse and help tribal members across California finally heal. Reporter Lee Romney brought us that documentary about tribal domestic violence in California. If you're experiencing domestic violence and you want some support, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit thehotline.org. You can also find some tribal-specific resources at californiareport.org. A big thank you to everyone who participated in today's episode. 
especially to Yurok tribal member Laura Woods, who helped out as Lee's research assistant. A shout out to documentary filmmaker Louisa Conlin for sharing her recording of Lori Nesbitt's class. This story came to us courtesy of the Judicial Council of California. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This episode was edited by Alexander Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Susie Racho. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amanda Font, Hector Arzate, Nina Sparling, and Lisa Morehouse. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.